0: Good to be back here, and welcome to any of our guests that may be here. Sorry I missed last week. Um, Woke up Sabbath morning with, I guess, what is uh, sciatica. I wasn't really sure what was going on. It was just uh, very, very painful and never got much better. So I've been struggling with that this last week, and people ask, well, how are you doing? And, well, that's a pain in the posterior. Uh, If you've ever had sciatica, uh, all I can say is that uh, I guess I've had a little bit of that before, but it never radiated down to my ankle before, and uh, that hurts as much as the others. So it's, uh, it's not much fun. But I'm here. You're here. It is a Sabbath day. God gives us trials for various reasons. We should rejoice in them. So I'm rejoicing over the fact I've lost six pounds, and that's good. I wanted to lose about 10 or 12, so uh, there's always something good that comes from every trial. And I think it's important that we do learn to rejoice in our trials as much as we want them to end. You know, former President uh, Bill Clinton popularized the expression, I feel your pain. Now, actually, this sermon had nothing to do with my particular condition. I don't know why I got on this subject, but uh, you pray about things and things come out, come to your mind. But he popularized that expression. I don't know how many times he said it, but others uh, referred to him as saying it, I feel your pain. Now, whether he did or not is another matter, and I'm sure, depending on what one thought of the individual, the president, uh, you might think that he really did. Or he really didn't and it was just a political ploy. But the thought he expressed is significant and it is an important concept. Probably all of us think that we are compassionate and empathetic, but are we? Are we really? I I would doubt that there's a person in this room who thinks that they don't, that he or she doesn't have compassion or is uh, not very uh, empathetic toward other people. But do our actions, seen and unseen, match what we think? Words are cheap, and so are thoughts. Thoughts don't always cause us to react a certain way. And it is our actions that really tell whether a person is showing compassion or is empathetic. In today's sermon, titled, Empathy and Compassion, I'm going to discuss the absolute importance of possessing the godly qualities of empathy and compassion. I normally don't like to give dictionary definitions in sermons, as most people simply glaze over uh, when that's done, and these definitions often don't add a whole lot. Dictionary definitions often... You know, if you look for something that one word, a noun, it'll give you the the verb of it, and it doesn't always tell you exactly what you're looking for. But I'm going to make an exception in this case because I think that compassion and empathy are so closely related, and it is important that we understand what, where they come from. Compassion means sympathetic pity and concern for the sufferings or misfortune of others. It comes from the Latin word, Compati, uh, meaning suffer with. That's an interesting concept, suffer with. Empathy originates from the Greek empathia, from pathos, meaning feeling. So empathy is feeling, and compassion means suffering with, or suffering with others. So they're very closely related, and I know that there is a slight difference there, but they're so close that we'll just stick with both of them today. So what I'm focusing on today is the ability for each of us to put ourselves in the shoes of others, both intellectually and emotionally, and experience what they're going through. Not just suffering, but what other people are going through in other ways. When we make decisions, for example, our decisions affect other people. Do we take into account other people's circumstances when we make those decisions? We can make financial decisions, for example. Oh, let me give you a a very concrete example of what I'm talking about. I remember when I moved into a particular church area and I heard very early on that they had a a big uh, basketball tournament in a church that was about four hours away. Over New Year's. And being in a, an area where you can have uh, serious weather, it seemed like always there was a, a snowstorm or an ice storm in that time of year. But it was very costly for a lot of people. And I had a number of parents coming to me and saying, we hope we don't have to do that this year. So, I, I realized that this is something that Others have to be consulted with. And so I asked the congregation, I said, I don't know whether we should go for that. I could have made the decision as the minister and said, look, we're going. And I think that's what had been done before. But I said, I'd really like to know what those of you who have to pay the cost of it, that is the parents want, because I know what your kids want. And I know what a few of the adults want, but I want to know what the parents who have to drive down there, fork out money for hotel rooms, you know, pay the gas, the hotel rooms, the food, the whole works, and uh, perhaps even take off a day of work in some cases, not every case, but in some cases, I'd like to know what you think. And so during the week, I got uh, five or six uh, phone calls from people saying that, please, let's not go. And I had one that said that we should go, and so I made the decision that we wouldn't go. Well, that didn't go over very well with a few people in the congregation, but the majority were happy with it because they were the ones that had to pay those things. You know, in the ministry, and I, I hope that you can put this in the right context, uh, when we came out of Ambassador College back in the 60s and 70s, we were young men, and we were given a... A fleet car, in many cases, often we came out with a new bride. We went out to a, a new area to pastor, and we were young, athletic, and we liked to do all kinds of things uh, athletically. And so we set up some of these tournaments. And uh, our fleet car, uh, the gas for it was paid. Uh, we didn't have to worry if it broke down; the church took care of it. We. Uh, had our hotel rooms paid because it was a legitimate business expense. And the same thing for food. And so some of the younger men, not all by any means, but some of our younger men didn't take into account the circumstances of the members in their congregations. And that's one of those things that over time built up a certain amount of resentment because it was a lack of ability to be able to put themselves into the lives of the ones that they were making decisions for. And I realize that a parent can decide, well, I'm not going to do it, I'm not going to go, but that puts a lot of pressure on the parents as well when the kids are, you know, left out and everything like that. So I'm not just talking about sympathizing or having compassion for people when they are sick or they are afflicted. That certainly is a great deal of what I'm talking about today. But I'd like to expand it a little little further to understand the other person's point of view. And when I say point of view, I'm not talking about a doctrinal issue. I'm just talking about where that person is in life. And we need to take into account those things. Note that compassion and empathy are qualities that the Apostle Paul had And an example that we are to follow. Let's notice how he took into account where other people were. In Acts the 17th chapter, Acts 17, he was sensitive to the people that he was going to be preaching to. Acts 17 and verse 22. He is there at Athens... And he says, then Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. So the apostle Paul, could have just walked in there and talked to them as though they were Jews, but he didn't. He talked to them on their level, where they were, and so he used their very uh, gods, as it were, in this sense, uh, or at least one of them, uh, to expound on the truth. Now, When I say he used one of the gods, that could be misunderstood. Somebody could say, well, you know, you're using some pagan goddess, whatever god. That's not what we're talking about. He he saw this inscription of the unknown god. And so he said, look, let me tell you about the unknown god. He's unknown to you for sure. He probably didn't say it that way in their face, but he said, let me tell you about the unknown god. God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men. Now that was important if you think about it, because here he was a Jew, he's talking to Gentiles, and he is drawing them in and saying, look, he's made all of us out of one blood. We are not Jews and you're some sort of subhuman species, we're all made... From one blood, we all came from Adam and Eve. And that was a very small point, but very important. Of One blood of every nation of men to dwell on the face of the earth and has determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings. So God determines some of those, not some of them, but all those things. So that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. That's all of us. As also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Now that's interesting because then he quotes not just uh, uh, as inscription, but one of their poets. So he was familiar with them. So he reached them on the level where they were. That's a challenge that we have in the church of God today. Because where we are, and where the world is, is a long way apart. And we cannot compromise with truth. And we are to cry aloud and spare not, and lift up our voice like a trumpet and show our people their sins. We have to do that. It's, uh, it's a sad day, as Mr. McNair uh, was pointing out. Well, I guess I was the one that wrote it, but he was the one that was on the receiving end of the problem. Uh, it's a sad day when a traditional family, the promotion of a traditional family has become so abhorrent to people that they refuse to let anybody speak out on the subject. In other words, they can say anything they want to, but don't you promote what you want to promote. It's a very sad day. And yet somehow we have to reach these people. And maybe there's a way that we can get through to them, and maybe not. It may just be that we'll be like Jeremiah and the other prophets, that we will simply tell the truth the way it is, and they'll see us as negative and everything, and uh, God will take care of it in the end. But we do want to reach some people, those that are in the middle ground. You know, there's there are those who would agree with us, there are those who don't agree with us no matter what we do, but there's that middle ground that can be persuaded one way or the other. And we have to use uh, the right logic and and meet those people on common ground as much as we, we possibly can without compromising the truth. We should never compromise or lower ourselves to their standards, but we should be able to reach down to them and pull them up. It's important that we see people where they are. In First Corinthians the ninth chapter, First Corinthians 9 and verse 19, it says, "For though I am free from all men, the Apostle Paul is speaking here, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win the more. To the Jews I became as a Jew that I might win Jews to those who are under the law as under the law, that I might win uh, those who are under the law. So he dealt with Jews and Gentiles differently. He says to those who are without law as without law, but notice he qualifies this by saying not being without the law toward God, but under the law toward Christ. In other words, he did not come across as a Jew promoting all the regulation of the law that the Jews had. But he was not without law to God. He kept the commandments. But he didn't address those people who did not understand the law in the same way that he addressed those who did. That I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became as weak. That I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men that I might by all means save some. So we see this, this caring, this thinking, this, this compassion that the Apostle Paul had for the audiences that he spoke to, of understanding where they were and trying to reach them on that capacity because he loved them and he cared for them. You know, one of the ways that we show our love, uh, the, the love of God in us, is by reaching out to the world and trying to spare the world. Over in uh, Proverbs, the uh, 24th chapter, Proverbs 24, and verse 10. This is really a little different from what follows, but I, I think it's very appropriate. For if you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. And frankly, there have been those who knew the truth and keep the Sabbath and keep the holy days, but they have fainted in the day of adversity because they don't think that we can preach the gospel to the world. But verse 11 says, Deliver those who are drawn toward death and hold back those stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, Surely we did not know this, does not he who weighs the hearts consider it? He who knows your soul, does he not know it? And will he not render to each man according to his deeds? We have to love the When I say love the world, I don't mean love the things of the world, but the people of the world enough that we're willing to reach out to them and try to save them from what is coming. Now, we understand that God only can call a person. God has to turn something on in the mind. But we have to give the message. And if we don't, we're not showing love because there will be some who will respond to the truth god will call some amongst them back here in 1 corinthians 9 he says uh, now this i do well i just read that so let's move on to romans the 12th, uh, 12th chapter romans 12 and verse 15 very simple statement it says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. This is showing empathy for others. It is showing that we have an understanding to a degree of how they feel. Now I know we can use that expression. We say, well, I know how you feel. Well, there's really no way that we can know how somebody feels. And when we say, I feel your pain, I understand that we really don't feel that person's pain. I, I can remember when I broke my arm as a child, actually a couple times, boy, that really hurt. But I cannot feel that pain right now. Well, I can in another way. <laughs> I can't feel the pain of that broken arm, which was excruciating at the time. And once it's over, it's over. A woman is in pain when she is in Labor. But once a child is born, the pain leaves, and you forget it to some degree. I don't want to tell our wives what they forget and what they don't. I uh, don't want to step on their toes there, but even the Bible says something about that. We, we really don't feel someone else's pain physically, but we can appreciate the pain that somebody is going through. We can appreciate their situation, and that's what we need to do. And the Apostle Paul is saying here, and verse 15, when someone is rejoicing, rejoice with them. Don't be a party pooper. They're, they're happy and you you know throw a, a damp cloth on it. But weep with those who weep. You can put yourself in the shoes of others. I think that many times at funerals we, we can do that. We're there at a funeral. Maybe we wouldn't just weep for a particular person on our own, but when we see everybody else weeping, we get teary eyed as well too don't we at least i think that there are times when we should when we can empathize enough with those people who have suffered a loss that we will uh get teary eyed ourselves maybe even weep ourselves somewhat contagious in first corinthians 12 first corinthians 12 In verse 26, it says, "And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it; or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it." We have announcements continually about people who are sick and afflicted. Mrs. Oliver, Mrs. Gretchen Jacques, and you know, Mrs. Uh, Powell here a while back. Uh, we, we have a number of people who are going through severe trials. Uh, Mr. Ames is is home, not feeling well at the moment. I think he has a, a cold or something like that. But do we do we uh, suffer with them? Do we appreciate what they're going through? When one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Or one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Sometimes people don't rejoice because they're jealous. One person is honored and an individual thinks, well, I should have gotten that honor. And so instead of rejoicing with the person, that individual looks at it another way. And instead of rejoicing, tries to throw a wet blanket on it. So we need to understand what Paul is saying here, that Paul had empathy. He was compassionate. And we have these examples where he refers to it, and maybe not in those exact words, but he shows that that's what we are to do, that we are to have compassion and empathy for others. We must develop the mind of God because that's what we are to become. Remember, Paul said that even the Athenians recognized that they were children of God or they were uh, God's offspring. They didn't understand it probably the way that we would, I'm sure of that. But we understand from many scriptures that God is reproducing himself and we are to be part of his very family. And so if we're going to be in that family, we must develop the same characteristics that Christ had. So in Philippians, the second chapter and verse four, it says, let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So whatever Christ Jesus' uh, mind was like, that's what our mind should be. And this book, as Dr. Meredith so often said, this book is the mind of God. It's the mind of Christ. He is the Word, the spokesman. And so as we read this book and we see how other people reacted to certain situations, we learn the right way to act, the right way to think. But in this particular case, he says, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. And he gives a very specific example, who being in the form of God did not consider robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bond servant and coming in the likeness of men. He emptied himself of his divine power. Now, when you have a few pains, aches and pains, I don't know about you, but it reminds me of what Christ went through. And I was thinking last Sabbath, as I was going through a few pains, that I was trying to add up the number of hours that Christ was beaten, pummeled in various ways, finally hung up on a stake. And, you know, it wasn't that long in one sense. But when you consider the pain that he must have been in, it could seem like an eternity. It just goes on and on. And he did that so that you and I could live. Now you talk about empathy and compassion. Wow. Which one of us, when we're born into the very family of God, as a spirit being, never again to experience pain or suffering, no more tears, no more sorrow, are going to volunteer to go down to some planet. Not that that's going to happen. I I, Uh, Some have speculated that, and I'm not at all speculating that, but I'm just saying, which one of us, if we were in Christ's shoes, living with the Father for all of eternity, would come down to this earth, the dusty, hot area where he was born, and allow himself to be abused in the way that he was, so that he could save the very people that were doing that to him. I get a little frustrated sometimes when I run into situations, and as far as I know, there's nobody here that I'm talking about. But every once in a while you run into a situation where somebody is unforgiving of a brother in Christ or a sister in Christ. And I, I can think of very specific examples in the past where you try to get two people together and you simply cannot. Because their response is, well, that person's not converted, why should I? And the other person, well, that person's not converted, so why should I? I've never read anything in Scripture like that. But people are unable to forgive one another. Again, I I don't know that that applies to anybody here. I, I certainly am not aware of anybody here that's in that situation. But I just know that in the church of God, from time to time, we run into people who refuse to forgive someone. And that shows that they don't understand, they can't put themselves in Christ's shoes of what Christ did for us. It's a magnificent, unbelievable sacrifice. The greatest sacrifice probably in the entire universe of all time. I can't think of anything greater. we, We haven't been around forever, so we don't know everything went on before, but I know of nothing that... From our perspective here, they could say there's ever been a greater sacrifice than that, a greater act of love than that. But he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross or the stake. Galatians 2.20. We are all very familiar with that, and I want to spend a lot of time on it, but let me just point out the fact that this is what what we are to become. We are to have Christ forming His very character within us. I've been crucified with Christ. My old self has, has died. So it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And if we understand the love that Christ had for others then that same love must come out. Jesus Christ loves every single person in this room. Every single person in this room. And if you don't love every person in this room, then you've got some growing to do. Because we've got to come to the place where we love every other person. I don't mean every other one, but every Every person. Not only in this room, but in the world. Have you ever noticed how easy it is to love somebody that's far off? Uh, there was an advertisement some years ago on television for coffee. And uh, Juan Valdez, I think that was his name, at his borough. And you'd see him walking through the grocery store. Now, nobody ever hated Juan Valdez. Well, I, I shouldn't say that. I don't know. Maybe somebody did. I don't think most people did. But you know why nobody got upset at Juan Valdez? Because his donkey or his mule, his burro, probably never stepped on your toe. If he did, then that might be another matter. But you're seeing him on television, so he's far away. It's only when we rub shoulders, when we mix with people that we really begin to to hate. Now, we can hate other nations and other peoples for you know, because of all the politics of this world and everything's going on, but I'm talking about on an, on an individual basis. So we must have the mind of Christ. Christ must live in us. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Christ gave himself for me, but he gave himself for you as well. And this is something that Sometimes we get so focused on, you know, law and different things like that that we would forget the other side of the coin is law and grace. Now, if, when you find people talking about love without law, it's time to head for the hills. Because that's when a lack of love shows up. I've noticed that over the years, I've been around long enough in the church to see that. That when somebody starts talking about love and uh, and and forgetting about law, then that's when bad things happen. So we have to uh, have love and law, and the love of God, uh, keeping the commandments, is the love of God. But we need to have this empathy for one another. We need to have compassion for one another. Notice Romans the fifteenth chapter. Romans 15. And we'll begin in verse 1. It says, We then who are strong ought to bear with the scruples of the weak, and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, leading to edification. So we are to think about the, the benefit of the other. Especially if someone is weak, we need to consider that. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you uh, fell on me. For whatever things were written beforehand or before, for our learning uh, that we through the patient and comfort of the uh, scriptures might have hope. Verse 5, now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus. So, brethren, we are to be like-minded toward one another. And, you know, I think in the church of God, I think there is a tremendous amount of that. Uh, Sometimes people say, well, you know, the church lacks love or something. I suppose that's an easy accusation that one can make. But I see a tremendous amount of love in the church of God a tremendous amount of caring for other individuals. I see people taking care of uh, older neighbors. I see situations where uh, we're concerned for the young of the church, the youth of the church. I see people coming to fellowship and striving to get to know one another. I think there's a tremendous amount of love in the church. But we can always grow in more and we can always learn how to put ourselves more into the, the mind or the, the feelings of other individuals. He says, Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another according to Christ Jesus. that You may with one mind and one mouth glorify God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. You now Jesus was the God of the Old Testament. We all know that. We could turn to several scriptures to prove that. But what does the Old Testament teach us about the mind of God? Let's notice a few. I mean, there, there's so many scriptures on this subject that you really just have to limit yourself. I mean, you almost have to be brutal about limiting the scriptures you're going to cover. But let's notice one here: Psalm 86. and i'll just read the, the one verse verse 15 it says but you o lord are a god full of compassion and gracious long suffering and abundant in mercy and truth so it's david here is, it's this a psalm of uh, a prayer of david He points out that God is a God full of compassion and gracious. Now, does that mean that God's compassion was such that every time David had a problem, that God immediately stepped in and solved the problem? You know, God knew that we grow through trials and tribulations. And that's compassion as well because he's looking at the end product of what he's trying to create within us. And yet we see time and time again in the Old Testament where God had compassion on Israel or Judah, where he pitied them. In Psalm 103, this is one of my favorite Psalms, Psalm 103, beginning in verse 1. It says, "Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all His benefits. Let's always remember all of God's benefits. who forgives all your iniquities, who heals all your diseases. And God does do that. He doesn't always do it on our time schedule, but he does. It's, he's going to resurrect us to eternal life at some point in time with a totally healed body. Who redeems your life from destruction? Who crowns you with loving kindness and tender mercies. Yes, God is full of loving kindness and tender mercies. The wicked of this world, he still gives rain. He still gives food. Now, sometimes mankind, because of our wars and so forth, we create famines and and so forth. But God has, has made a world full of food. You go to some place in this world and you just pick it off the trees. It's everywhere. Some of the more tropical areas. God provides. I noticed in the northern climates, you go up to, say, Newfoundland. And they call it the rock for a reason. Uh, because that's what it mostly is. And you'll see little gardens on the side of the road, the highway. and they're Just a little garden just off the, the road because there's some soil there. Now there's soil here and there, but it's not the. You're not going to find great big wheat fields, I don't think. I don't think I ever saw anything. Maybe in the upper arm, but I don't remember seeing, um, you know, fields of wheat up there. But one thing it has is berries. It has berries galore, cloudberries. You probably never heard of those. I never did. Uh, plus all kinds of other berries. And you think about it, and fish. At one time, until they, you know, the, the fishery's been destroyed, there was an abundance of food there. God has provided for all peoples everywhere. This world is alive. And God has created it in such a way for life to survive. He gives food for all the animals, all the creatures. As he says here, He crowns our life with loving kindness. Uh, The Lord executes... Let me see where I am. Satisfies your mouth with good things, verse 5. So that your youth is renewed like the eagles. But the Eternal executes righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known His ways to Moses, His acts to the children of Israel. The Eternal is merciful and gracious, slow to anger... And abounding in mercy. How many times do we sin and wonder, will God forgive me another time? And yet he does, as long as we come back repentant with a repentant attitude, striving to overcome. He will not always strive with us, verse nine, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. So he doesn't deal with us to the degree of our sins. He doesn't say, okay, well, this person, that's it, that's too much. God overlooks a lot, doesn't he? In, in a sense, he overlooks. He doesn't, I mean, there's still that that law that has to be satisfied, but he, he has a great compassion for us, and he allows doesn't allow, but He he forgives us when we do come up short. He'll not only strive with us, nor will He keep His anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. Verse 11, For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is His mercy toward those who fear Him. As far as the east is from the west, so far He has removed our transgressions from us. As a father pities his children so the Eternal pities those who fear Him. Now, isn't that what compassion is all about? I actually use that word pity in in the definition. For He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. He knows how we're made. He knows that we are physical. He understands the temptations that we have. As for man, his days are like the grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourishes, for the wind passes over it and is gone, and his place remembers it no more. But the mercy of the eternal is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children. So we see that God gives us a lot of slack, doesn't he? He really does. As a father with his children. Whenever you're around a two-year-old and they're tired, I see parents so patient with a two-year-old. When you don't have, when it's not your own, especially if you're on an airplane, you wish somebody would do something. But, you know, you have to put yourself in the the shoes of that little infant, in the feet of that little infant, a lot of times it's air pressure on their ears, and sometimes they're screaming because their ears are, are aching. And if you've ever had an earache, you know what that's like. I remember one time following a lady. It was up by Traverse City in Michigan. I was in the car, and I was following, and she was driving very slow. I didn't know it was a she. I just, I just saw this car. And I'm trying to get around. I'm in a hurry and mile after mile you're behind this car and you can't pass and it's slushy and snowy and one thing and another. And finally I got to the place where it, it divided at a, a traffic light and, and I was able to kind of get around her and I, I stepped on the gas and I came around her and then the light changed. And I had to slam on the brakes and slide a little bit and I looked over there and it was a little old lady. And I thought, you know, that could be my mother. Boy, that changed my attitude toward her real quick. And I felt ashamed of being so impatient. So often that's the case. You see the person that you're so angry at and you find, oh, well, yeah, that might have been my mother. Or could have been someone like that. It was certainly somebody's mother. In Exodus, the 34th chapter, it tells us about the very nature of God. God's name is what He is. and In Exodus 34, verses 5 to 7, it describes the very character of God. This is where Moses was uh, wanting to see God. And he was given the new Ten Commandments so tablets on stone. And here in verse five, he said, now the Lord, let see, 35, let me get the right chapter. Verse, uh, 34, sorry again. It says 34 verse five. Now the Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. So here's the name of the Lord. People get hung up on pronunciation. And they miss this. And verse 6. And the eternal passed before him and proclaimed, The eternal, the eternal God, merciful and gracious, long suffering and abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the and the children 's children to the third and fourth generation, so there is that law that has to be kept, but at the same time God is merciful he knows that we come up short and the new covenant we see that forgiveness is a part that 's part of the uh, the main uh, of the covenant that 's one of the promises that God gives to us. Note these actions and instructions that come from God in Genesis the 18th chapter, we can look at certain actions on God's part that tell us a lot about his character. In verse 26, we find that God is going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah because of their gross immorality, frankly taking them out of their misery, all the penalties they're paying, and he'll resurrect them. We know that from Matthew 11th chapter, 12th chapter, it talks about the resurrection, and talks about Sodom coming up and condemning that generation that Jesus, where uh, Jesus did His mighty works. But God is going to deal with Sodom, and so here in verse 26, the Lord said, "If I find in Sodom fifty righteous within the city, then uh, I will spare all the place for their sakes." Then Abraham answered and said, "Well, I- indeed, now." Uh, I am I who am, but dust and ashes. Have taken it upon myself to speak to the uh, the Lord. Suppose there were five less, so he brings it down to forty-five, and God says, No, I won't destroy it for forty-five, and then he brings it to forty, and then thirty, and then twenty, and he brings it down to ten. And in verse thirty-one, he said, Indeed, now I have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. This is uh, Abraham. Suppose twenty should be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of 20. Then he said, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak one more time. Suppose 10 should be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of 10. God would save the city if there were 10 righteous in the city. But there weren't. And when you read how, lot, I'm sorry, uh, oh, this is, yeah, this is Abraham here. When you read a little bit later how, uh, the, the angels came there and dealt with Lot, and they went out to the sons in law, and so you begin to see this extended family of Lot that Abraham may have been thinking of his family that there were, okay, there are ten of them there, and, uh, God would not destroy it for them. But his sons in laws just laughed. Uh, Lot's sons-in-laws just laughed at him when he told them what was going to happen. And even there, you see that the angels grab them by the hands and take them outside the city the next morning and then send them on their way. And we know that uh, Lot's wife turned back, longingly, no doubt, wanting to go back, maybe not wanting to give up family and so forth. But we see God's compassion here. He was going to spare the righteous. He wasn't going to destroy everybody with the sinners that were there. Uh, If we go over to Exodus 22, Exodus 22, we see the mind of God in this, what is called the Old Covenant. And we'll begin in verse 22. He says, you shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. If you afflict them in any way and they cry at all to me, I will surely hear their cry. In other words, God is very concerned about the widow and the fatherless, the fatherless child. And if God is that concerned about them, then we certainly need to be. He says, if you afflict them in any way and they cry at all to me, I will surely hear their cry. And my wrath will become hot and I will kill you with a sword. Your wives shall be widows and your children fatherless. Now, he's speaking in a sense, in a national sense there, that if you don't take care of the widows and the fatherless, God wants the nation to do so. He wants us individually to do so. Verse 25, If you lend money to any of my people who are poor among you, you shall not be like a money lender to him. You shall not charge him interest. Now, I remember just down the road, uh, not that far away, uh, Spartanburg, there was a member there that had all these loans from these loan sharks had a number of financial problems and that 's when I learned that at least at that time in South Carolina, as long as you posted what the the rate was, when somebody walked in the door, you could charge any kind of interest. there was one of his loans it was only two or three hundred dollars but it was 70.5% interest. And this is a type of thing that God did not want to see amongst his people. He says, "If you, um, you shall not charge him interest. Verse 26. Another example of God's love for us. He says, If you ever take your neighbor's garment as a pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. Why? For that is his only covering. It is his garment for his skin. What will he sleep in? And it will be that when he cries to me, I will hear, for I am gracious. In other words, this person has nothing more than the clothing on his back. And so he's, he, he has nothing else to give in pledge except his garment. And God said that you should not keep it overnight. You need to return it to him that night. He can give it to you the next day. but that that pledge should not be kept from him overnight because he needs it for warmth. This shows us a little bit of the mind of God. Notice verse 21. He says, You shall neither mistreat a a stranger nor oppress him, for you are strangers in the land of Egypt. Do you see how he is trying to get across the concept of empathy? You are strangers. You went through that. You need to show the same concern for strangers that come into your land. You know, I I think that we have a major problem in our Western world where we've allowed way too many people coming in from all over the world, and, and they're just totally changing our culture, I think, of Canada especially. And how so many of our neighbors were of a totally different religious persuasion from the Middle East. And yet, I know my wife and I always tried to treat them as we would treat anybody else. We might not like their religion. We might not like some of the things that happen in their countries and how it's exported and some of the violence and everything. But as long as we don't know that they're a terrorist or whatever, let's treat them with love and respect. God wants us to treat the stranger in a kind way. And we need to do that in our land here. Too many people get caught up in in hatreds that that just shouldn't be. It doesn't mean that uh, that is necessarily in the church, but we come from the world as well. Let's notice over in Deuteronomy, the 10th chapter, speaking of the stranger, it shows us that empathy is involved in how we treat another person. Deuteronomy 10, verse 15. It says, The Lord delighted only in your fathers to love them, and He chose their descendants after them, you above all peoples as it is this day. Therefore, circumcise the foreskin, foreskin of your heart. Now, this is mentioned a number of times in the Old Testament. Circumcising the foreskin of your heart. And be stiff necked no longer. For the eternal your God, verse 17, is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome and shows no partiality nor takes a bribe. He administers justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the stranger, giving him food and clothing. Therefore, love the stranger, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. He wants us to learn from our trials from the things that we go through. He wants us to be able to take those lessons and see it in other individuals. See the pain that somebody else might have. See the the difficulties, the struggles that that person might be going through. Jesus showed great compassion for people while he was on this earth. And the word compassion is actually used there a number of times. Let's notice in Matthew, the ninth chapter, Matthew 9 and verse 36, says, But when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion for them, because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. So Christ had compassion for them when he walked this earth. There are a couple other scriptures. You could look at Matthew, the 14th chapter verses 14 to 21, Matthew 20, uh, verses 29 to 34, you could look at that, showing Christ's compassion for individuals, one case a blind individual or a couple blind men, others who were just weary and needing food, and so he fed them. He had compassion on the people. He set us that example. Now, Jesus' experience on this earth was a learning experience for him. Let's notice that over in Hebrews, the second chapter, that we have Jesus Christ as our high priest, and he is a better high priest because of what he went through. I don't want that to be taken the wrong way, God certainly knew how he made us and created us, but as the apostle Paul says, he, he learned from his experience on this earth. Hebrews 2 verse 14. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself, speaking of uh, Christ, uh, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and released those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. His experience as a human being enriched his understanding For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. In other words, he learned in the physical flesh. God is still able to learn and will continue to learn. In Hebrews 5, verse 7, says, Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death... And was heard because of his godly fear. Verse 8. Hebrews 5 verse 8. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So in the physical flesh, he learned, he grew. In the physical flesh, during that time on this earth. Back in the fourth chapter. Verse 14, it says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, or we could say empathize or have compassion because of our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Yet he resisted sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Christ learned from the things that he suffered on this earth. And we have a faithful high priest, one that can sympathize, one that can empathize with our struggles, our pains. Let's take a look at a few examples of those who lacked compassion and empathy. Let's go back to Nehemiah, the fifth chapter. Remember that under the old covenant, they were not to take usury of their poor brethren. And so in Nehemiah, the fifth chapter, in verse one, it says, there was a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brethren. For there were those who said, we, our sons, our daughters, are many. Therefore, let us get grain that we may eat and live. There were also some who said, We have mortgaged our lands and vineyards and houses that we might buy grain because of the famine. There was a famine going on at the time. They're trying to build the wall. And they had mortgaged their lands, their farms, their you know even their own children, as we shall see. Uh, he says in verse 4, therefore, or there were also those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our lands and vineyards. Yet now our flesh is as their flesh, or the flesh of their, our brethren, our children as their children, and indeed we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have been bought, or brought into slavery. It is not in our power to redeem them, for other men have our lands and vineyards. So we're having to sell our daughters as servants, as slaves, and we can't redeem them because all of our land has been not auctioned off, but uh, is collateral. And I became very angry when I heard their outcry and these words. And after serious thought, I rebuked the nobles and rulers and said to them, Each of you is exacting usury from your brother. So I called a great assembly against them. And I said to them, According to our ability, we have redeemed our Jewish brethren who were sold to the nations. Now, indeed, will you even sell your brethren? Or should they be sold to us? Then they were silenced and found nothing to say. They were embarrassed by their actions when they were confronted with them. Then they said, what what you are doing, then I said, what you are doing is not good. Should you not walk in the fear of our God because of the reproach of the nations, our enemies? I also with my brethren and my servants am lending them money and grain. Please let us stop this usury. And he commanded them to restore those things to them again. This was an example of people who had no compassion, no empathy for their own brethren. that were helping to build the wall. There were certain individuals who had more, and maybe they weren't doing the building. They were the merchants and what have you. And individuals were selling their own children into slavery and their lands and their uh, everything they owned, their homes. This was not an example of empathy. And Jonah, the fourth chapter, one of my favorite passages of Scripture, Jonah, I think we're all very familiar, everybody's read Jonah, even our young ones, but we think about the fish and everything like that, but what we find here is the Ninevites, which were the ancient people that have come down as modern-day Germany. The only example that we ever have that I know of, of a people really, truly repenting, I, I know I just read one where they kind of repented, but uh, this is where the nation repented of all their sins, or at least all the sins that they understood. And so they repented of that at the preaching of Noah. I'm sorry, not Noah, Jonah. And, and then in chapter 4, it says, "...it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he became angry." They repented, and Jonah became angry. So he prayed to the Lord and said, Ah, Lord, oh, ah, eternal. Was not this what I said when I was still in my country? Therefore I fled previously to Tarshish. For I know that you are a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, one who relents from doing harm. Therefore now, oh, eternal, please take my life from me. I want to die. For it's better for me to die than to live. Well, Jonah knew that these people were the enemies of the Jews. And he recognized that, or of the Israelites, and he recognized that. And he didn't want them to repent. And so he didn't go to do the job that God had given him to to do. He knew God was very merciful and full of loving kindness. And so he ran from the job that he was given to do, and then after the fish regurgitated him up on the shore, he decided, well, maybe that's a better option. So he went in, and boy, then he lambasted them, and they all repented, and now he's ready to die because they've repented, and God has relented from bringing disaster on them. Then the Lord said, Is it right for you to be angry? Verse 5, So Jonah went out of the city, and he sat on the east side of the city. There he made himself a shelter and sat it, uh, it under it in the shade till he might see what uh, would become of the city. He wasn't sure exactly what would happen, so he set up this shade up there and sat up there on the hill watching. And the eternal God prepared a plant and made it grow up over Jonah it might be shade for his head to deliver him from his misery. So Jonah was very grateful for the plant. Uh, there's a lot of speculation as to what this plant was. I think I know. It's kudzu. <laughs> now, those who are might, if this goes out, you may not know what kudzu is. But if you drive through Mississippi or Alabama, some of those places, it, it just takes over houses and old junk cars and goes across the wires on the... Uh, uh, you know, light poles and so forth. It, it, it takes over everything. So that must have been what it was. We don't have a lot of it here, but it, there's certainly plenty of it in other parts of the South. You don't want to stand still too long. Let's put it that way. <laughs> he was grateful for the plant, But as morning dawned the next day, God prepared a worm. And it so damaged the plant that it withered. And it happened when the sun arose that God prepared a vehement east wind, and the sun beat on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. Then he wished death for himself and said, It is better for me to die than to live. This was a really upbeat sort of fellow. Not exactly the kind of person that you'd want to have as your closest friend. Yet he is a servant of God, and we're seeing him kind of at his worst, I think. I, I think there was... There were some good things about Jonah, obviously, and we're going to look forward to meeting him in the kingdom and talking to him about that fish, and probably some some will wonder where that fish might be found. uh, They'd like to throw a hook out there, but anyway, it says, uh, it's better for me to to die than to live. Verse 9, then God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And Jonah said, it is right for me to be angry, even to death. This is quite a quite a situation there. But the Eternal said, You've had pity on the plant for which you have not labored, nor made it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. And notice this, because this is a powerful statement. It's the last verse of the entire book. He says, And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot discern between their right hand and their left? And much livestock. God loved Nineveh. He had empathy for them. He had pity for them. He understood where they were coming from. He understood that that was not the group of people that he started to work with. He will work with them. And we know that they will have a prominent place in the millennium under, under Christ's rule. But this was a different time, and yet in spite of their sins, which were no doubt many, they came to repentance, and God would have compassion for them. In Matthew, the 18th chapter, another very famous passage, maybe I'll just refer to that. I'll just refer to that uh, over in Matthew 18. This is the uh, unforgiving servant. You can read that in verses uh, 23 to 27 approximately. You can read more than that. But this is where one servant owed his master a certain amount, and he asked for mercy. And so he said, well, you know, change the amount, and that will be satisfied. And then he goes out, and he finds another servant and you know the the one who is forgiven and he he doesn't have compassion. Verse twenty seven then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, forgave him the debt. That's the first one. But that servant, verse twenty eight, went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. You know, just take him by the throat. Pay me what you owe. So his servant, fellow servant, fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will pay you all. And when you look at the amounts, the one owed far more than the other. And there's a lesson that if we don't forgive one another, then God won't forgive us. But there was a lack of compassion in this case. He just wanted what was his and forget the fact that this this other person was begging for, for mercy. Now we have examples of those who did show empathy. We have the Good Samaritan. You can read that in Luke, the 10th chapter. We're all very familiar with that. The Good Samaritan. This individual was not only neighbor, but he was an individual who had compassion for the the person that he saw in a terrible strait. There. We have in Philippians the second chapter, Philippians two, and verse nineteen. We'll begin there. It says, "But I trust in the Lord Jesus." To send Timothy to you shortly that I also may be encouraged when I know your state. For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. Notice, who will sincerely care for your state. I have no one else like-minded. Even uh, It seems to indicate that even within the ministry that Paul was working with, there was no one like Timothy who sincerely cared for the state of the people. Not that the others didn't have some care, but... His example stood out so far above others. There's nobody else like him that Paul had. For all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. But you know his proving character, that as a son with his father he served me with me in the gospel. Therefore I hope to send him at once, as soon as I see how it goes with me. But I trust in the Lord, that I myself shall also come shortly. So we see the example of Timothy. Now, that's something we ought to strive to, to follow, an example. To be like a Timothy and sincerely care for the well-being of everyone else. We have some commentaries on the subject. Uh, you might want to write this down. How can I help? Commentary by Roger Meyer. If you go on the website, there's another one. Empathy for a friend. Empathy for a Friend, that one is by Davy Crockett. A couple commentaries, and if you go there, you'll see other references uh, to the the subject, and you might want to study it that way. The Scriptures are filled with statements about God's mercy, His compassion, His empathy for mankind. You read the Psalms, uh, the whole of the Old Testament is just filled with grace and mercy and forgiveness and, and compassion. It's all through there, full of mercy and so forth. Uh, it's just everywhere there. They show that God is, is merciful, compassionate, empathetic for mankind. One of the great reasons for suffering is that it reminds us to think about the state of others. That's one way we can rejoice. It reminds us to be concerned for the state of others. Suffering should build, build within us compassion and empathy. But we must exercise it when we're not suffering. It's one thing to be compassionate for others or empathetic toward others when you're suffering and you see them suffering. But when you're feeling good, that might be another matter. And I don't mean to say by this that that we have no empathy, no compassion for one another. I don't believe that for a minute. But I think that this is something that we always need to grow in. It's a characteristic of God. It goes against human nature itself. We must exercise empathy and compassion when we're not suffering. As Paul tells us, let this mind, the mind of Christ, be in you. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus.